0: I'm your host, Andy Earl. We are here today with Dr. Judson Brewer to talk about his book, Unwinding Anxiety. Dr. Brewer is an internationally renowned addiction psychiatrist and neuroscientist. He's the director of research and innovation at Brown University's Mindfulness Center, as well as an associate professor in both the School of Public Health and the Medical School at Brown. His 2016 TED Talk, A Simple Way to Break a Bad Habit, has been viewed more than 16 million times. He's trained Olympic athletes and coaches, government ministers, and business leaders. His first book, The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked, and How We Can Break Bad Habits has been published in 15 languages. Today, we're going to be talking about his research and his new book, Unwinding Anxiety. We're going to see that anxiety is a habit that it's very easy for you and your teenagers to fall into. We're going to look at the neuroscience of how this habit forms, and we're going to talk about how you can break the cycle. All that and more is coming up on the show. Dr. Brewer, thank you so much for being here today. The book is called Unwinding Anxiety. New science shows how to break the cycles of worry and fear to heal your mind, and you're not just kind of writing this based on some blog posts you read on uh, on the internet or something. You've kind of uh, have been studying this topic a little bit, huh? How did you get into this, and um, where what have you kind of uh, has led you to write this book? Yeah,
1: you know, it's a good question. I was anxious back in college and didn't even know it, uh, and then in my residency training when I was training to be a psychiatrist. I got full-blown panic attacks. I write a little bit about that in the book as well. And as a practicing psychiatrist, I've struggled with helping my own patients with anxiety. So when I prescribe medications, there's this number needed to treat that gives a sense for how well something works. That number for the best medications out there is 5.2, which means I need to treat, you know I need to give five patients a medication and one of them is gonna show a significant reduction in symptoms. So I don't know which of the five is going to benefit and what to do with the other 80%, which causes anxiety on my part. So, so what led me to write this book was you know, those things in terms of you know, how am I going to help folks? And also, it, it came together with some research that my lab was doing, where we were developing these digital therapeutics, which is just a fancy term for an app. Uh, But developing these digital therapeutics for habit change. So we had some early um, research with my lab where we delivered mindfulness training, we got five times of quit rates of gold standard treatment, uh, which is pretty good. And we, we developed, yeah. We developed an app called eat right now and have studied it now extensively. One study showed a 40% reduction in craving related eating. And in that program, it was interesting. Somebody said to me, one of the participants said, Hey, you know, I'm noticing that anxiety is driving me to stress eat. Can you create a program for anxiety? And I was thinking, well, I prescribe medications for anxiety, but it put a bug in my ear. And as a researcher, I went back and looked at the literature. And it turns out there's a nice literature from the 1980s suggesting that anxiety can be driven like any other habit. And it's like my eyes popped out of my head when I read that. And I put them back in and I was like, wow, I never thought of anxiety as a habit. And wait a minute, I know how to treat habits. (laughs) (laughs) We've been developing programs for that. So we developed this app called Unwinding Anxiety, and we started testing it to see how well it worked. You know, I won't bore you with all the details, but basically one study with anxious physicians, we got a 57% reduction in anxiety. In a study with people with generalized anxiety disorder, we got a 67% reduction. And there we could calculate the number needed to treat. So as I mentioned, medications, 5.2 in this study, ready for it? 1.6. (laughs) Yeah. So all of that came together, you know, with, with my clinical work and I, and it just seemed like it was time to write this book to put it, you know, put it out there so people can really understand how anxiety forms and how they can actually work with it.
0: So, okay. Now you mentioned anxiety acting like a habit can you explain mm-hmm. what that is you lay out in the book kind of like the three steps involved in that how uh, how does anxiety function like a habit
1: yeah so any habit is formed with three there are ne- three necessary and sufficient elements a trigger a behavior and a result so just to give you an example you know this this process is set up to help us survive so let's say our ancient ancestors are out on the savannah trying to find food you know they don't have refrigerators So they need a mechanism to remember where food is. So they see the food. There's the trigger. That's the first element. They eat the food. There's the behavior. That's the second element. And then their stomach sends this dopamine signal to their brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. You can summarize that as the reward. So trigger, behavior, Mm. reward. Yep. What that does is, if a behavior is rewarding, it feeds back so that the next time it's triggered, our brain says, Oh, do that again. You know, go back and get that food. Right. The same is true for avoiding danger. You know, you, you're out on the savannah, you see the saber tiger, there's the trigger, you run away, there's the behavior, you don't get eaten, <laughs> there's the reward. Uh, and so you repeat that, you, you avoid that part of the, the savannah. So anxiety is interesting in the sense that anxiety itself, the feeling of anxiety, can trigger the mental behavior of worrying where we start to worry about something yeah and yeah. that mental behavior feels it gives us this feeling of control or at least a feeling of like we're doing something totally you know, like, yeah yeah if there's a for example if if um somebody has uh teenage kids and their their you know their son or daughter gets their driver's license and they go out driving with their friends for the first time. And they say, don't worry, mom or dad, (laughs) what's mom or dad going to do? They're going to worry every minute until the kid gets home. I can promise you that worrying doesn't keep their kids safe, right? But it gives their brain something to do. And in that
0: sense, it's rewarding. But then I thought it was interesting in your book because you point out there's actually maybe been a change that's occurred where now you can actually track your teenager using an app as they drive your car, you know, down (laughs) uh, to wherever they're going and every intersection they're stopping at. And you almost like you have so much more access to information now that there's like more to worry about.
1: Yes, there is. There are plenty of things to worry about. So we can, you know, parents can go on. And look at their their kid's social media feed, and start worrying about what their kids are talking <laughs> about or what they're re, you know reposting. And they can worry, you know, they can track their kids and see where they are and see you know start worrying them. Yeah.
0: There there are lots of things that that we can worry about. <laughs> and so uh, we have to be better than ever, I guess, at um, managing anxiety. Indeed. So how does it help us to know about how anxiety it functions like a habit? What can we do with that information? Well, that information,
1: I think, is critical as a first step for helping anybody work with anxiety. Yeah. So if we don't know how our mind works, how can we possibly work with it? And so, you know, just mapping out these habit loops around anxiety can be really helpful. And I give some examples of some of my clinic patients in the book. But just as an example, you know, um, if somebody comes into my office and they have, you know, panic disorder, for example, and they don't know this habit process, you know, trigger behavior result or reward, they're not going to be able to work with it. One of the case studies I write about in my book is somebody with panic disorder who was panicking around driving. And the first thing we did when he came to my office for an intake, you know, it took his history. And then I pulled out a blank piece of paper and I just wrote trigger behavior reward on the piece of paper. And I said, and drew the arrows between the three and you know, completed the circle. And I said, okay, let me make sure I'm getting this straight. So for him, he was having these thoughts when he was driving on the highway that he was in a speeding bullet. That was the trigger behavior was that he would start to avoid driving on the highway because it was unpleasant to have yeah. those thoughts. So it was this avoidance behavior. And then the reward was that he could avoid having those thoughts. And so, about the
0: bullet. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So he was basically avoiding driving on the highway altogether. Uh, so it yeah. took us 30 seconds to map that out. And he just, he just had this aha moment hmm. where he said you know, something like, I had no idea. That's how my brain works. That's not, uh, you know, that's how my mind works. And yeah. so I even just, I just sent him home and I said, we'll start mapping out all your habit loops around anxiety. So that's yeah. really the first step for anybody to map out anxiety habit
0: loops and to be able to start to work with them, and that's uh, uh, sounds like fun. Uh, you talk in the book about curiosity, you know. Uh, I think that's such a cool um, exercise to get curious about yourself and try to start mapping those things out. And I wonder where, uh, or if you have any tips on like you know, on finding those, or where to look for those, or how to think about, um, you know, where you might locate some of your habit loops. It's, you know, I, I think
1: that it's helpful to simply go throughout the day and just kind of keep it in the back of one's mind. In fact, we created a free habit mapper. I think the URL is mapmyhabit.com. Okay. Uh, Anybody can go there and download this free PDF where they can just start mapping out their habit. So I have, I tell my patients to, you know, to print this out. And just carry that piece of paper with them and when they notice that they're caught in a habit or afterwards yep. they can just take a moment to map up the trigger the behavior and the reward and in that sense you know it's a great way because often we're not aware of our habits because they're habits yeah. <laughs> so so it helps bring them to light and i would say you know it's helpful to just go throughout the day mapping them out
0: You talk about a phrase that was taught to you by your PhD mentor, and the phrase is true, true, and unrelated. What's so important about those words?
1: Yeah, that's, I find that helpful not only in doing research, but in in daily life. So our brains love to connect things, you know, they correlate this with that. And then our brains make this misattribution of causality. You know, correlation does not equal causation is the term, the phrase. And I wrote about this in the book because there's a lot of, I would say, misattribution around performance anxiety, that somebody needs to be anxious to perform well. And so the way that that works is. So let's say that somebody's about to give a speech or perform a musical instrument or uh, do a sporting event. Right. And they're nervous, they're anxious. Yeah. So anxiety, true. They're anxious. And then let's say that they, you know, they give a good speech or they uh, do a good performance in yeah. music or sports. True. So anxious, true, good performance, true. It doesn't mean that the anxiety actually caused them to perform well. In fact, People for, perform at their best when they're relaxed, when they're not anxious. But our brains love to think, you know, they they make that that causal, you know, that misattribution of causality, yeah. and they say, oh, well, last time you were anxious, you should be anxious this time, and then yeah, yeah. people feel like they've got to be anxious it to worked. perform well. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the only thing that worked in that case was that the brain (laughs) was making this correlation into a causation. I wouldn't even say that that worked, but it's uh, it's an indication of how our brains work. Let's put it that way.
0: Okay, but wait a minute now. You say anxiety. Um, isn't like a little bit of anxiety helpful. Isn't there sort of this like inverted U kind of pattern where at the low, you know, you don't want to have no anxiety at all because then you like, don't care and you're not motivated or something. You don't want to have like a a bunch of anxiety on the high end and be really nervous, but maybe somewhere kind of in the middle is actually where you're going to perform the best.
1: Yeah. Are you ready for a great story? So I was tracking down this inverted U-shaped curve, which seemed to be perpetuated on the internet. So First red flag there. It was on the internet. Uh, does not mean it's true. What? So it it turns out that there were a couple of researchers back in 1908 who were studying arousal in Japanese dancing mice. I kid ah. you not. Japanese dancing mice, okay? That makes sense. Yeah. And in the 1950s, so, you know, they, what they figured out was that if mice are basically asleep or not, you know, not aroused, they're not going to perform well in a maze if they're kind of sleepy, it makes sense. And if they're too aroused, then they're not going to perform well in in that task. But it's somewhere in the middle, you know, this Goldilocks thing, you know, if there's a good amount of arousal for whatever that is for a Japanese dancing mouse, I think they shocked them, you know, a little bit of shock, you know, they, they're like, yeah, whatever. That's not, that's not, you know, that's not going to get me off my butt to go through the maze. Yeah. And then a lot of shock, they're like, ow! what'd you do that for? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and they're going to decrease their performance that way because they're like, yeah. damn, that hurt. Uh, so there was there was a famous psychologist who in the 1950s, just he was giving a speech at some conference or something like that. And he he just in his speech, he kind of loosely brought together you know, more correlation well, not even correlation, but he just talked about arousal and anxiety in the same sentence. And then one of his graduate students or his former graduate students, a couple of years later, published a paper suggesting basically saying that anxiety and arousal were, were he used them synonymously. And from, from there, you know, you, nothing really happened for a while, but then the internet came along. Uh, for example, this, this dancing mouse paper, was only cited, you know, it's a send, uh, you, when somebody cites a paper and says, oh, yeah, you know, I'm referencing this paper, that gives a sense for how much it's being read right Um, although who knows how much these things are really being read if somebody cites them but it it was only cited maybe 10 times before between 1908 and the year two i think the year 2000 or something like that okay yeah um or or 1990 something like that and then it was cited a hundred times you know um maybe from 19 from the year 2000 to 2010 or something and then it was cited over a it just started getting cited exponentially mm-hmm. as these people were talking about, oh, you, you know, you've got to be, you've got this inverted U-shaped curve and you've got to have some level of anxiety. Uh, this, this was completely debunked, you know, because it was just this internet meme where everyone's like, oh, yeah, that, uh, that uh, makes sense because when totally. I get anxious. Yeah, it
0: sounds kind of intuitive, you know, like it sort of makes a little <laughs> yeah. bit of logical sense. But yeah, so, but it's not yeah, so the- out by science. Right.
1: So long story short, when you look at the literature, there's an inverse relationship between increased anxiety and performance. So the more anxious you are, the worse you perform, which when we really look at it, you make sense. There is no inverted U-shaped curve. That applies to Japanese dancing mice (laughs) who are being shocked.
0: There's also an interesting thing that you talk about in your book that I guess you uncovered in like an ancient um, fifth century meditation manual, and it's about breaking people into three categories of fight, flight, or freeze. What's going on with that? (laughs) Yeah. So we were, we were looking
1: at this manual uh, of, of Buddhist psychology, and they talk about being able to basically get a personality type or a, a phenotype of somebody, and they would, they would use that phenotype or that personality type as a way to give people instructions for meditation. So mm. for certain types, they would give one instruction, and for other types, they would give different instructions. And it turns out that these roughly line up with these, you know, these fight, flight, freeze, uh, basically survival mechanisms that we have, you know, so, you know, the idea is if you're confronted with danger, you'll either fight the danger, you'll run away, or you'll freeze in, in the hope that it didn't see you, you know, the deer in headlights type of thing. And these personality types that they described fall into three categories. One, they basically, one is where we approach things, you know, where it's like, yeah. oh, that looks good. Another where we kind of avoid things and another where we kind of just zone out and we don't approach or avoid or it's more along that, that freeze line. Interesting. Yeah. And so, yeah. So I worked with a, a Pali scholar, a scholar of the ancient language in which these, this manual was yeah, written. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And we look to see if we could develop a modern day equivalent of that. So people mm. could basically do their own personality test. People love yeah, to take personality yeah. There's tests. There's like so. a whole
0: quiz in here. Yeah. You can take yeah. and score yourself.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's 13 questions. Somebody can take it and it applies to modern day life. And then they can use that as a way to kind of look to see what their general habitual tendency is when it comes yeah. to situations and they can one learn about how you know what their habits are around that and then two they can learn how to work with work with their own mind to see yep. where you know they might be getting caught up in just how they generally approach life habitually and and see where it's helpful because often it is helpful and also see where it's not so helpful so
0: it can help them learn and grow if you're reading this book as a parent do you think that you're mapping out your own habit loops, and then talking about those with your kids and kind of like showing them about what you're doing? Or uh, how do you kind of like introduce this information to your kids or family members? I think it's a great idea for parents to take the quiz first
1: themselves and yeah. spend a little time exploring that mental territory. So kind of mapping out where they tend to fall into one category. And it's not, it's often where somebody has a predominance of wine and then less of another. And sometimes people kind of have all three equally. Yeah. So they can, they, the parents can map this out for themselves. They can start exploring it in their own lives. And then if they find it helpful for them, they can introduce the quiz to their kids. You know, it's a pretty short quiz. It's kind of, it's fun kind of fun. Take.
0: Yeah. You like yeah. Get to self insight about yourself and everything. And yeah. also yeah. could help you like understand each other, I think in a cool way.
1: Absolutely. So the parents can understand their kids more. The kids can understand themselves as well as their parents. Go parents mm. and say, "Oh, I'm this predominant type," yeah, and yeah. it really helps them. Yeah, they can relate to each other, perhaps a little bit more, understand each other a little bit more, and you know, kind of have fun with it, where they can they can learn and grow even together.
0: We're here with Dr. Judson Brewer. We're talking about his research on anxiety and how you can overcome anxiety by treating it like a habit. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show.
1: I learned more from something that didn't go as planned or expected than when things go as planned or expected. So here, the bigger, better offer is something that helps us step out of our old habit loops, but in a lasting way, right? So Uh. curiosity in itself feels better than being anxious. So our brain's like, oh, that feels better. And it also helps us open to our experience so we can learn from it, et cetera, et cetera. And the first thing I have them do I have them go home and I have them smoke. <laughs> you know? And they, you know, they look at me when I give them these instructions and they're like, oh, but I came here to quit smoking. And I say, OK, there's one important thing that you do as you smoke, which is to pay attention and, uh, and you pay attention to what it tastes like, what it feels like going into your lungs, what it smells like coming out of your mouth. And they come back and uniformly there, they go, I can't believe I didn't notice that this thing tastes like crap, you know, why? And they start to become disenchanted with smoking. And if they do that every single time that they smoke a cigarette, we've actually done studies on this. It only takes, um, I think it's about 10 to 15 times for that reward value to drop basically below zero. We've also done studies. When people who struggle with overeating are trying to not overeat. So if they're trying to lose weight or just not binge eat or stress eat, we have them pay attention when they do it. And again, 10 to 15 times that reward value shifts to the point where they stop overeating wow. because their brain's like, why would I do this? Yeah, you know, right. So it's not about forcing themselves, you know, stop eating. It's about asking themselves, what do I get from this? And when they really ask that question and feel into the direct experience, if it's not rewarding, they're going to see that clearly. And if it's not rewarding, their brain's going to update that reward value so that they see that it's not that rewarding.
0: Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening.